Jeff Ebert, and thanks for joining in my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People. This is Season 4, Episode 11. We're on one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament, the prophet Haggai. Haggai is only two chapters long, so if you can read the whole thing, either before or right after the podcast, you'll gain a lot more and just kind of remember the whole thing a whole lot better. But before I get into the scripture, I just want to give a shout out to one of my podcast followers, Mary Ann. Uh, who let me know that she listens to the podcast at night because it helps her fall asleep. Marianne, thanks for letting me know that. I'm glad I can help you with your insomnia, but that's not really what I'm going for. But uh, bless your heart. As some of you may know, one of my main lifelong hobbies has been to study and to teach various Japanese martial arts, mainly Judo and Aikido. Uh, I've invested over 40 years of my life in that pursuit, and I in many ways still feel like I'm a beginner. But knowing that may help you understand why I have this affinity for things Japanese, hence the wabi-sabi aspect of the podcast. But there's another Japanese idea that I'd like to talk about in this episode, and it's the wonderful Japanese pottery art called kintsuki. Kintsuki, which means golden repair. It's the art of taking a broken piece of pottery and mending the fractured pieces back together with a lacquer mixed with gold, silver, or other precious metals. The art is to take what was once whole and then got shattered and then to bring it back to life broken yet more beautiful. The story goes that back in the 15th century, a Japanese shogun broke his favorite teacup and he sent it back to China to get it repaired. I don't know, maybe it was still under warranty. Uh, He was adamant that he didn't want a new teacup. He wanted his old cup restored. His persistence paid off, and when the cup was returned, the shogun was fascinated with how beautiful it was with the cracks and pieces mended together with liquid gold and silver. And so began the art of Kintsugi. Instead of trying to hide the cracks in the broken pieces, Kintsugi actually highlights and enhances the irregular patterns that are formed, and in doing so, adds value to the broken object. Its brokenness is now part of its history, and accenting its brokenness actually increases the piece's value. Think about that for a second. Its brokenness is part of its history and actually increases its value. Think what it might mean if we applied that principle to our lives, our past, to our relationships. Instead of disguising or hiding our broken pieces, instead of throwing pieces of our lives away, What if we believe brokenness is part of our history and actually increases our life's value? That was the prophet Haggai's way of life. That was his mission, to help people, to help the people of God rebuild what was broken. More than any of the other minor prophets, Haggai points people towards a God who heals and restores, who fills the cracks of life with gold and silver. Now, in case you're new to this podcast or haven't listened to previous episodes in the series, let me just set the stage. We're going through an overlooked portion of the Bible called the Minor Prophets to see how God brings hope to people in tough circumstances. The message of the Minor Prophets is intertwined with the history of ancient, the ancient nation of Israel. So we have to know some of the historical background to fully appreciate the message. After the death of King Solomon around the year 931 B.C., The nation of Israel was split by a bitter civil war, and both sides of the conflict had their peaks and valleys, but mostly they abandoned their faith in Yahweh God. So God let them have their way. For several hundred years, the prophets spoke to the corruption and cultural decay that was eating away at their insides. 
while foreign armies were attacking from the outside. But nobody listened, and eventually both nations were conquered. And then their conquerors were conquered. Finally, in the year 586 B.C., the magnificent city of Jerusalem, once the pride and joy of Israel, it was leveled to the ground, just burned to a crisp. And you can read about that in Second Chronicles 36. The majority of the Jewish people were carried off into captivity in Persia, which is now, now, now modern-day Iraq and Iran. A number of the Psalms were written about this forced deportation and showed the despair and the anguish of the Jewish people. The Book of Lamentations grieves over this destruction of Jerusalem, as does the prophet Jeremiah. It was the death of all Israel's dreams. Now, in time, the Jews settled into living in their captive world, but always with the dream of someday returning to their homeland. Eventually, two small waves of people were allowed to return to Jerusalem. The second wave was led by a man named Ezra, about 460 BC. Ezra's main goal was to rebuild the temple because the temple was the symbol of God's presence in Israel. Symbolically, the condition of the temple represented the condition of their hearts before God. So if the temple was still a pile of rubble, well, then that didn't say much for the people of Israel. Ezra starts to rebuild, but it's not going very well. Jerusalem is just in a shambles. You have to imagine a city like, like Aleppo, Syria, after being destroyed in the battle against ISIS, or some of the cities in Ukraine bombed into oblivion by the invading Russians. So Jerusalem was completely wrecked. Nothing was working. No infrastructure, no government. Chaos reigned. And Ezra's attempts to rebuild the protective wall around the city had failed, so they were wide open to attack from marauding bands. Everything in the city was broken, including the spirit of the people. They grew complacent. They developed a me-first mentality. They forgot why God had called them back to Jerusalem. They forgot they were part of God's plan to rebuild and to restore. They forgot that they were God's kintsugi. They were the gold and silver that would repair the broken temple and make it more beautiful than ever. So Haggai must bring hope to this very broken situation and to some very broken people. Let me read now, just from chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, meaning the temple, remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Haggai's words come as both a reminder and a rebuke because the people 
had forgotten the mission God had called them to pursue. Their daily lives just got in the way, and they were just tired. They were worn out physically, but much worse than that, they were spiritually exhausted. Stressed out, so they zoned out. That ever happened to you? They zoned out on God's mission. The legendary Green Bay Packers football coach Vince Lombardi once said, Fatigue makes cowards of us all. And I know he's right. That's what happens when fatigue sets into body, mind, and soul. That's when people make bad decisions, when people get irritable, when they lose focus. It's what's happened to those who were called to rebuild here. So Haggai gives them a strong challenge. And the wonderful thing, thing is, is that the people listened in chapter 1, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of jo and Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the people the, gave this message to the, of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, they came and began to work on the house of God, the Lord Almighty, their God, and on the 24th day of the sixth month. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, stirred up the spirit of Joshua, stirred up the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. One short speech by Haggai, and the lights went on. I wish I could have been that kind of preacher. Probably every preacher does. Three paragraphs, and he had them eaten out of his hand. I mean, I wish. But it wasn't Haggai's speech that did it. It wasn't the cleverness of his words. It was God's spirit at work in the hearts of the leaders and the people that stirred them up, propelled them to get back on track, to put life into perspective, and to focus on first things first. And that meant putting God first, getting focused on God's mission to rebuild what was broken. Remember the temple was symbolic of their condition of their own hearts before God. They would only find personal wholeness when they put God first and allow God to put the broken pieces of their lives back together. The same thing is true for us. We have to put Christ first in our hearts if we seek to repair the damage that sin has done in our lives and in the world. We still have the same mandate from the Lord to allow Christ to rebuild what is broken in us and in our world. And there is so much that is broken, both internally and externally. More and more, I think people have the sense that the external things around us are broken, that things are not working the way they should. Sometimes I don't want to engage with the news because there's sure to be another mass casualty shooting somewhere. The things we have trusted in have in many ways let us down. The government, the media, the economy, school systems, families, relationships, churches, our political and marketplace leaders, even our religious leaders, the things that we have trusted in the past have let us down. And so our confidence is shaken, and what's the solution to that? Pass a few more laws and regulations to get us back on track, raise more taxes to get more funding, or cut taxes to boost programs? I don't know. Which is it? Is the answer bigger government or lesser government? Maybe neither of those is really the answer. Personally, I don't think authentic Christianity fits neatly into any political party. Never has, never will. There's got to be a better way. But I think we've reached the point where there are so many variables we can hardly cope with the complexity of the mess that we're in. And I think we need to recognize it's not just that if something is broken out there. It's not just some institution that needs fixing. 
or changing a few leaders will fix it. It's broken in here, too. People are broken. We're broken inside. And that's where broken things, there are broken things in each of our hearts. And sin has fractured ourselves as well as our world. There's something that needs to be rebuilt within every one of us. Things in us that aren't working the way that we'd like them to. We've got problems and worries and griefs and burdens and sins that weigh us down and are stealing the joy out of life. Everybody has something that's broken within, that's universal. So we need to recognize our brokenness and then turn to the Lord to see how God can begin a work in us to face those problems and to deal with that brokenness in a restorative way. We come to the Lord to see how he can perform a spiritual kintsugi on the broken pieces of our hearts. How does that rebuilding begin? Well, first step, a lot of people talk about wanting to change their situation or change the country or change the world. But how does that ever really happen? I mean, it sounds great, but how does it start? Whether we're talking about cultural or institutional rebuilding or uh, rebuilding a broken life, the process is very similar. And that's when you realize that in rebuilding anything, the hardest step is probably the first one. Was it Confucius who said, you know, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step? What is it that for that first single step, what is, what is that first single step going to be that gets you going to rebuild what's broken? <clears throat> Something has to stir in a person's heart. There has to be a starting gun that gets people going. And that scar starting gun is usually one of three things. First of all, it might be desperation, second, frustration, or third, inspiration. Desperation, frustration, or inspiration. First is desperation. Desperation that comes the moment you hit bottom, when you've got nothing left, no strength, no resources, no hope. Desperation means you've reached a dead end, bottomed out, you've had it, nothing has worked, you're over the edge, holding on by your fingernails. And all you can do is to shout out that one very important four-letter word, H-E-L-P. You say, God help me. And this time you're serious. No more pretense, no more excuses. You realize deep in your heart you can't do it on your own. You go to God because you've got no other option. You're at the end of your rope. And then you find that God gives you something to hang on to. Desperation is for some the first step in beginning to rebuild. And this is a good place to be, especially if you're battling an addiction, alcohol, drugs, sex, spending, cutting, whatever it might be. Desperation reflects the first three steps of the 12-step program, which is really a scriptural model for how to rebuild a life. Because first you admit that you're powerless over your brokenness, that your life has become unmanageable. And if you don't reach that point, nothing can be done to help you. You have to admit your helplessness. Second, you have to come to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. A force outside yourself has to intervene, and that, that's got to be God. And third, you make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. You stop playing religion, and you sincerely open yourself to a relationship with the Lord. If you're running away from God, if you're battling an addiction or some kind of compulsive chronic problem, then desperation is a good first step. You are brought to your knees in surrender, and that's a way to begin to change. The second way is through frustration, what is sometimes called having a Popeye moment. A Popeye moment, that's a phrase coined by Bill Hybels. Do you know how the old cartoon character Popeye, 
he would get pushed around by his arch nemesis Bluto because Bluto was always trying to steal the affection of Popeye's girlfriend, Olive Oil, which I never completely understood why. Anyway, but Bluto wanted olive oil for himself, and Bluto would bully poor Popeye until Popeye reached his boiling point, and he'd say, I've had all I can stand, and I can't stand no more. Then he'd pop open a can of spinach, which temporarily gave him, like, superhuman strength, and he'd just beat the tar out of old Bluto. But a Popeye moment, it's not desperation, it's frustration. It's the moment that has been building up for a long time. The Popeye moment is when you say to yourself, I won't live like this anymore. I must do something to change the situation I'm in. That's Rosa Parks saying she won't sit in the back of the bus anymore. That was her Popeye moment. And that's a good place to be if you say to yourself, what I'm doing isn't working, so I have to change. I have to change myself, change my behavior, change what I'm doing if I hope to bring any change to my circumstances. Now, the danger with frustration is that people can also go negative. It's an anger that's rising, like the mercury in an old-fashioned thermometer. If it reaches the top and something explodes, some vent their pent-up anger on others and make things worse. But a godly frustration turns into a positive motivation. You become highly motived, motivated to say, with God's help, I will make a change. I'm tired of this way I'm living, and with God's help, I'm going to live differently. But the third way is the way of Haggai. Not desperation, not frustration, but a moment of inspiration, a sudden shocking awareness, an epiphany that opens your eyes to see things from God's point of view. That's what happened to the leaders and people of, his, of Jerusalem. The proverbial scales fell from their eyes and they began to see things with God's heart, and that brought them to their knees, not in desperation, but in awe. You feel how God feels about something, and it shakes you. A moment of sudden insight. I mean, they've been living right next to the broken down temple, building and furnishing their own homes while God's house was neglected. They saw it every day, but they didn't really see it. All of a sudden, then God's spirit stirs them up through Haggai's preaching. They realize that their priorities were all mixed up. Up until this moment, their faith in God, their religion, it was just an accessory to an already busy life. They had a lot going on. And I can hear them saying, well, a little God is good, but let's not get carried away. Let's not make it take it too seriously. So many people grow comfortable having exposure, a little bit of faith in their lives. But that little exposure to Christ sort of acts like a vaccine against the real thing. That's what vaccines do. You take a weakened form of a disease-causing microorganism, inject it into your body so that it stimulates the body's immune system to destroy it and the body will more easily recognize and destroy the toxin in the future. That's what will happen with people who get a small exposure to a weakened version of faith in Christ. It's just enough so that faith is a low-grade interest in their lives, one where God becomes an accessory to an already busy life. The leaders and people come to a sudden awareness of how much their situation was an offense against God. They realized the temple was great because it was the place from which God's name went out to the world. They had been oblivious to what was going on, like they were sitting in the bleachers and weren't even watching the game. Self-absorbed would be the right word. For the first time, they understood that God must be the organizing center around which everything else rotates. For the first time, they realized things were broken, and this offends the glory of God. They woke up to a new reality. Not desperation, not frustration, but inspiration. 
the Lord stirred up their hearts. What about us? And whatever that is broken in you, and whatever that needs rebuilding, in whatever way you need to be motivated to take a next step, I pray that you will do it. I pray God will stir up your heart. So don't ignore God's pull on your heart today. Desperation, frustration, inspiration, any of those can be a movement of the Holy Spirit in your life, depending on your own situation. So let God move you. Let Christ shake you up and empower you. Let it happen. Let God open your heart to the broken things of this world, the broken people. Look inside yourself, but also look outside yourself. This is a hemorrhaging and hurting world. There are broken hearts and fractured families and lives everywhere. They need to be they need you to be at your best, to be on your knees in prayer, to use all of who you are to serve God's greater glory right here and right now. Let God do a kintsugi on your life and let God use you to mend the broken lives of others. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of an artist named Mako Fujimura. He's an American-born artist known worldwide for the unique kind of painting that he does that uses precious metals in his paint. It's a very rare art form, something he apprenticed and studied in Japan. And Mako is also a believer. In fact, he came to Christ as a teenager in the youth ministry of the church I served in New Jersey many years before I got there. But I've crossed paths with him a number of times, and he's spoken at our church on several occasions. In addition to being a painter, he's also an author of some really good books. Culture Care is one of them, as well as Art and Faith, and a really excellent book called Silence and Beauty, which explores the issue of suffering through the lens of the novel Silence by Japanese Christian author Shusaku Endo. Silence was also made into a movie directed by Martin Scorsese, and that's kind of taking us off course for today. But I'm going to talk about more about silence uh, in a future podcast. Well, what brought all this to mind was I ran across a commencement speech that Mako did for Judson University entitled Kintsugi Generation. So let me read a portion of his speech. In Japan, as you know, one of the many venerated cultural traditions is the tea ceremony. For centuries, there have been tea masters who perform the tea ceremony to visualize the invisible as a spiritual and artistic practice. When precious tea bowls break, the families of tea masters will often keep the broken bowls for generations and later have them mended by artisans who use a lavish technique known as kintsugi. Kintsugi masters mend, gold, mend tea bowls with jet with uh, Japan lacquer and gold. A bowl mended with gold is more valuable than the original tea bowl was before it broke. The Kintsugi tradition is linked to Sishen Riku, the 16th century tea master who defined the Japanese aesthetic. But Kintsugi also offers us a vision for our times in America. Then he goes on to talk to the students and he says, yours is a traumatized generation with bullet holes in schools still causing flashbacks every time there is an active shooter drill. You are numbed by never-ending terrorist threats and brutalities and images of destruction all over the news. You grew up with metal detectors and sports at sports games and concerts and other new normals for our fear-filled age. If you are here today, you are part of that Kintsugi generation. Someone has poured gold into your brokenness, and you have endeavored to honor that. Perhaps I'm an optimist who sees the cup half full, but I do not think you would be here if you did not, even in a minute way, think that you can be part of mending a broken world. You are not just here for your resume to get a job or to find a career, as important as those things are. 
because you are a Kintsuki generation. Your generation will mend and will pour gold into the fissures of our broken lives. And you can not only mend, you can create anew. Create a world in which an invitation will be given to those who are broken, those who mourn, those who are persecuted, those who are poor in spirit, will be offered a great light. Your lives can be an offering of peace in a divided world, a gesture of hope for those in despair. Your sacrifice will be an aroma of the new. So go mend. Be the kintsugi masters of your generation, of your own disciplines, in the workplaces and in your homes. Pour gold into the fissures of the world. Well, I think Haggai would like that speech, and I think he'd agree that that's God's work of spiritual restoration. Rebuilding what is broken means we are all called to a ministry of kintsugi with our broken world. By his sovereign grace, God can bring good out of our failures and even out of our sins. Jesus, he was broken for us. He was broken for you and for me. And he was and is perfect. He is perfection. But he yet he was once broken, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus was broken for us at the cross, but he rose from the dead and with the most glorious scars any man could ever bear on his body, which actually made him even more beautiful as our Savior. You see, the more broken you are, the more beautiful you are, because he has so much more to put back together. It doesn't matter how many scars you carry, we all have some, some more than others, and we are all unique. And yet we are all able to be put back together by his grace. And oh, how painful the process is of being beautifully broken. But oh, how sweet and precious are the hands that mend them all back together. The hands of the precious potter. Jesus is the kintsugi master for the human heart, the human soul. He's the precious potter who puts us together and gives us value. We are broken people restored by Christ, the only one in the universe who can do so. So today, can you embrace being beautifully broken? Can you embrace being beautifully broken? Broken, but beautifully restored through the grace of Jesus Christ. Would you humble yourself and accept that you need a Savior to come into your life and start putting back every piece that's been shattered? Will you let God rebuild what is broken in you? Will you help the Holy Spirit repair what is broken in others? Thanks for listening. Have a great week.